You can turn in your Bibles to the book of God is my judge. In case you can't find that, it's right in between God strengthens and Yahweh has saved. Maybe that'll clear it up for you. And if you're still lost, or think I've lost my mind, God is my judge is Daniel's name. And he's in between Ezekiel and Hosea, Ezekiel meaning God strengthens, and Hosea meaning Yahweh has saved. And when we think about names of people in the Bible, maybe it doesn't mean as much to us today as it meant back then to the name someone was given. Not sure exactly why. Maybe it's just when we think of our culture and the importance we place on names Something's been lost. There are other reasons people have for uh, naming their children other than the meaning of the name. I googled that this week, how to, how to pick a good name or something like that. I think Shannon and I did an okay job. But the highest on the list was not, in my internet sleuthing, the meaning of the name. In a couple of the articles that I read from name experts, aka bloggers, uh, the first thing was, this, this was consistent across the board, avoid passing trends. So parents-to-be, the number one piece of advice is uh, asking, will our baby's name stand the test of time, or will it sound completely ridiculous in 10 years? I remember talking to my older brother, and he has three boys. When uh, the third one was still in tow... He asked his, I think, probably then five-year-old and three-year-old what what ideas they had for a name for the new son about to come, and the three-year-old said, Camel Spider. (laughs) Now, I don't think that's a trendy name, if you ask me, but it definitely wouldn't stand the test of time. Other advices on picking a name was, remember that a classic name doesn't have to be boring Or look at your family tree, honor your culture. And then number five on the list was look up the meaning. After that, then there was maybe secondary stuff like consider the uh, possibilities of uh, hurtful nicknames that could be made out of the name you give your kid. Or especially in the South when people do the uh, monogram thing on everything to look at that and make sure it's, it's a good initial set. All that being said, it was ironic that at the end of every one of these articles about how to pick the perfect name, and they gave you advice, they did end with this. One thing is for sure, there is no right or wrong baby name for your bundle of joy. If you found the perfect name and you love it, that's all that matters. I will hold my opinion on that. Shakespeare did ask what's in a name, is it true that a rose by other other name would smell just as sweet? When it comes to the Bible, knowing names might mean more than we realize. When you know that Daniel's name means God is my judge, does looking back now over the first six chapters see that there's a bit of a tip of a hand? There's a bit of a, a clue right there when you look at his name, not because Daniel was trying to do that, but that other horizon line, not the one we see, but on God's horizon line, sovereignly ordaining Daniel's name, he knew what he was going to use Daniel for. 
And the convictions that Daniel would need to live out his life would be true to his name. Would they not? Can can you see now, looking back over Daniel's life, chapters 1 to 6 took us from his age of 18 to 80-some. And is there a more true statement about Daniel than he lived under the banner of the conviction that God was his judge? And if you really believe that, if it's a true conviction, and uh, my son asked me this morning, Dad, what, what is a conviction? And on the spot, I just said, it's a truth that you would be willing to die for. Not simply something you would check, true or false, true, and could be persuaded to change under the right circumstances or pressure from the outside. A conviction is something that you would say, I, I believe this, And I believe it so far as I'd be willing to die for it. That's what was Daniel's example to us. Living with the conviction that God sees all and knows all and will judge all. And that is what we would pray we would live with. And it's a good thing overall for God's creation. Because what's the alternative To believing that God sees all and knows all and will judge all. Well, the alternative would be to live under the delusion that God doesn't see all and know all and won't judge all. And is there not a more summary statement of our society today? People in our country living as if what? God doesn't see all and he doesn't know all. And even if he does, he certainly wouldn't be the type of God that would judge us for that. That's That's a lie. And that lie makes a person believe that there is then no consequence for their decisions and that they are their own highest judge and thereby no one else can judge their actions, man or God. But here is the truth that we have seen as we have studied Daniel, the God who reigns, is that God is our judge. And he sees all perfectly and he knows everything completely. He is sovereign, he is supreme, he reigns. And Daniel has lived a life that shows us what it looks like when you really believe that with everything you are. And in light of that, I was looking at where we are in Daniel. We're at the halfway point. And if you've been reading ahead, you may notice a shift between chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 1 through 6 has been a narrative, a history of Daniel's life that he picked six particular occasions to compile sometime later in his life, probably around 530 BC. So he is, uh, if he came in 605, I mean, he's pushing 85 to 90 at this point. He is writing his memoir. But chapters 1 to 6 are the summation of the big six stories he wants to be remembered by. Of course, carried along by the Holy Spirit. What you'll notice in Daniel chapters 7 through 12 is no longer a history or a narrative. It's prophecy. It's no longer him looking back. It's God giving him a vision of the future. Now, this vision of the future he has in Daniel chapter 7 through 12 actually comes at visions he had back earlier. So we will be doing some back to the futuring in the weeks to come of hearing Daniel's prophecy for the future, even though we'll be going back and you'll be hearing names that have already passed off the scene. It's just the way that God superintended the composition of this letter. But as I was looking at this halfway point, there was something in me that just said, Adam, I think it'd be good to try to recap this because I've been greatly encouraged by the 
encouragement you've received from Daniel to, to live a life of courageous conviction. And at this halfway point, and really it's a turning point, I want to try to go back in 1 to 6 today, and before we close that chapter, chapters 1 to 6, try to pull together the implications of a life of courageous conviction for us to learn from. Now, every sermon we've heard from Daniel 1 to 6 so far has had some implications of the truths of his life that lead us to examine ours. But what I went about doing this week is if I said, but if I had to try to pull all those together and just say, could I bring just forth five absolutes, five maxims from, from Daniel's life, from chapters 1 to 6, and, and give us a replicable pattern of principles that he lived by so that we could do the same, and that's what we have in front of us today. And I would just add that 1 Corinthians 10 Paul does say when describing the history of, of Israel in the wilderness and looking back at their ups and downs, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.6 to the church at Corinth, Now these things that happened thousands of years ago took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. And then down in verse 11, now these things happened. Again, speaking of something thousands of years in the rear view. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And that was, I guess, the conviction under which I studied with and prepared this this week was to say, I do want us to stop not to glorify a man and idolize Daniel, but to say it's nice to have an example, a real flesh and blood example like Daniel, who had his own challenges in the culture of his time to live through. And it's pretty rarefied air to find in the Bible, let alone in life outside of the Bible, somebody that did it so well. Are you with me? I mean, it's again, we're not trying to put him on a pedestal. We just say there's a pattern to the godliness of some people's lives that's worth trying to study and to pull some principles out and extract for ourselves. Not in a measuring up, but in magnifying the God of Daniel, who did sovereignly place him in a place and time, but, but yet had these things written down for our good. Some timeless truths to learn from Daniel's pattern of his life that endure, which is discipleship. We're constantly, in, in this day and age, if you're discipling someone, it is not just a deposit of truth. It's a deposit of your life. And those things need to match up. Yes, it's the truth that convicts. But it's your life that models it. And for somebody that you, you want to influence to walk closer with Christ, that you want to disciple, it's got to be both. It's got, they've got to be able to hear what you say, but see it in what you do. And when you don't do it, see the example of what repentance looks like. And so that's what we're going to aim at today. Not because Daniel's perfect, and you know that. But it will answer some questions that were burning in my mind. What are the, what are the basic elements of his character that translates to today? Or ask this way, what makes a man able to impact an entire nation? What makes a man or woman have an impact on a king when they're a nobody? What was it in Daniel that we can learn from today? 
And so the title of today's message, Courageous Convictions in a Compromised Culture. And there's five of them. And these are, again, this is, this is uh, distilling all that we've learned about Daniel so far in chapters 1 to 6 to 5. that Maybe you can seal into your memory. Courageous conviction number one is this. Culture will not change me. If you look back at Daniel 1 to 6 and you, you take a summary of his 70 plus years in Babylon, it's this. And this is undeniable about the life of Daniel. He lived with the conviction that culture will not change me. Now, culture was trying to change him. That's how this book starts. And so if you're late to the game, if you've just been joining us, we're back in Daniel 1. And Daniel 1, 1 to 7, gives you this, the summary of his life as a teenager brought from Judah over to Babylon, 605 B.C. The, the northern kingdom is gone. Israel, the northern kingdom, those ten tribes. Assyria wiped them out. God's judgment. And then here was Judah thinking they were okay, but they too did not repent did not, as we studied earlier, that prayer that Solomon offered to truly turn so, so that God would spare them. But they had kings that went on in their wickedness and Jehoiakim in verse two is one of those. And so the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And as Babylon's empire is increasing, he is, um, he's using the best of the best for his own empire. And that's where Daniel comes into the story. And he is indoctrinating them. He is taking these teenagers, and it's a complete indoctrination, cultural, from every angle. He is trying to rewire the way these uh, Israelite youths without blemish, verse 4, good appearance and skillful. They were bringing something to the table, and he wanted to maximize that. So whether it was going to be what they were learning or what they were doing, and even down to what they were eating, he was going to change them. And he was even, if you look at verse 6, going to rename them. And, and, and that's where we see the jumping off point in the life of Daniel. Daniel, whose name meant God is my judge, was given a new name, verse 7 says, Bel Teshazzar, which means Bel protects my life. So he goes from hearing the first 14 to 15 years of his life, when he hears his name, he hears God is my judge, and he lives with that conviction. He lives under the weight of the glory of that statement about his name. My name in the Hebrew means dirt. So when I hear that, it reminds me of the depraved sinner I am. But it's not so inspiring. But Daniel would have heard, God is my judge, every time his name was called. And now when his name is called, he is going to hear, no, Bel protects my life. Bel being the false god of the Babylonians. Do you see the, the situation being set up from the get? He's, they're trying to give him a new identity. The culture pressing in from around him is trying to rewire his thinking from the inside. Did it work? No. Look at Daniel chapter 6. He's the same God-fearing man at 80 as he was at 18. Why? Because you can change Daniel's name, but you can't change his nature. Is a man who feared the Lord. They attempted to erase his identity, and it didn't have an effect on him, nor should it have with us as self-proclaimed followers of Jesus. Our new name, and it's the same one. It's Christian. It's Christian when you follow Christ, when you're born again. You're given that name, and that's your identity. 
And the culture can come around as much as it wants and try to change it. But that new name changes the way you think about yourself here, now, and forever. And to see that all of our life is now faith lived out in a foreign land, in a sin-saturated society. So what? Doesn't change who you are on the inside. Philippians 3.20, Paul gives this reminder. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the perspective you got to live with. So that you don't be, so that you're not conformed to the culture that's trying to press in on you from all around is that you have a new identity in Christ and heaven is your home. And God's kingdom is your new citizenship. When Christ has come to live in your hearts, You're given a whole new outlook and it starts with the way in which Jesus taught his followers and what was recorded in the gospel for disciples after disciples to know about their new identity so they don't conform to a culture, so they can know culture won't change me. It can't change you if you don't let it by the conviction that you carry. What did Jesus teach in his gospels? When John 18, 36, before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world and members of my kingdom aren't of this world. We're members of God's kingdom, not the world's. Jesus says in Luke 10.30 that our names are registered in the record book of heaven. Do you believe that? As much as you believed what happened in front of your face, if you went to vote this past week early and they said, let me see your ID, what's your address? As true as you could state your current address you live at, you have a permanent home in heaven. And it's recorded there. So live like that's where you belong. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 12, not only your name's registered there, a great reward is being kept for you there. And that reward is inextricably linked to the rejection you face in this culture. But that reward increases as the pressure increases. And you stand firm in the faith. Great will be your reward for being laughed at and mocked and rejected for the sake of Christ. And he says in Matthew 6.20, your reward in heaven is waiting. That great reward he promises you, it's waiting and it won't be what? Corrupted. It won't rust out. No thief can come and destroy it or steal it or take it away. So if our King Jesus tells us where our citizenship is, our membership recorded, our reward is in safekeeping, why on earth would we live on earth as if all that matters is earth? You tell me. If all of the reward, all of the promises, and our King records our name in heaven and has something waiting for us there, why would we put all our stock down here? And that's a conviction that starts with saying, so culture won't change me because it's not giving me anything I really want. Brothers and sisters, learn from a Daniel and live for the Lord today. And ask, what good is Bell's protection if God is your judge? Settle it in your heart today that your king and your kingdom aren't down here. Now that's the big lesson. 
That there's this pressure that the world was pushing in on Daniel and it pushes in on us. And we actually, it, it, that we see it happen in two different ways, which form conviction two and three. Generally speaking, you live with the conviction of a Daniel that says culture won't change me. But conviction two and three are two sides of the same coin of the temptation. To be tempted not to live against the culture whether by feast or by the flame. So let's talk about courageous conviction number two, the feast. Pleasures will not persuade me. If you're going to stand strong and say culture won't change me, know the way it's going to come at you. You have to have the conviction in your heart, pleasures will not persuade me. Persuade you to what? Compromise. Cave in. We've seen that in the life of Daniel. Look at verse 8 in chapter 1. Right after he's been renamed, right after he's being re-educated, right after he, he is being rewired to say, I am no longer a citizen of God's kingdom, I'm no longer of the people of God. He's not thrown into the flames or to the den of the lions. He's offered a fillet. Isn't that a creative way by the enemy to tempt? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And we've said this before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't give you the detail that says, oh, that's because of clean and unclean foods or food offered to idols. No. All it tells you in its stark brevity is that his conviction was he would go so far in this indoctrination, but not that far. Not the point of pleasure. I mean, of all the things, he, he could have said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to reject the teaching, or you can't call me that name. No, he doesn't do that. He says, no, there's, there's something about eating this food and having this drink that I'm going to say I'll pass. It's the same conviction that we heard at the end of Belshazzar's life. The last pagan king of Babylon who had forgotten about Daniel brings him back and says, oh, you can help me, you exile of Judah. And he says, I'll give you a reward if you can give me an interpretation. As in, I, there's some pleasure involved here. There's some reward down here. And what's Daniel's response to Belshazzar? Daniel answered and said, Daniel 5.17, let your gifts be for yourself. I haven't wanted them since day one. And give your rewards to another. Here's the reality. At any point in his life, and it started early, if he would have compromised, even with the smallest Capitulation to the culture. Yeah, that looks good. Yeah, I want that. Yeah, pass that down my way. Here's the reality. Character, courageous convictions can't be formed indulging your carnal cravings. You believe that? Now, there's a, there's a personal level of that just in your day-to-day -day life. The, the, the carnal pleasures. The, the stuff Ephesians 2 talks about. That we once were like. When we followed the prince of the power of the air. What does he call them? The passions of our flesh. The desires of our body. Do we say, hey, those things might still be good, but they're not God. And I might want them, but I don't need them. Now that could come at you every day. But you're also not going to form godly character, indulging carnal cravings in the church. Looking for a church that looks and sounds like what you like in the world. So why isn't our church this? Why isn't our church that? And you're comparing it to what? The passing fads. 
We need you to have a church more relevant in this way or that way. Is that the word of God informing that opinion? Or is it just a, a passing preference? Measure maybe even a, a thing you enjoy, and you're not wrong for enjoying it. But, you, but you're not going to form a steel-like resolve with tools of creature comforts. But comfortable works is a temptation, doesn't it? Chapter 1 is all about that. There ain't nothing you wouldn't enjoy in chapter 1 of Daniel, save being taken to exile. But once you're there, remember we said, Babylon can be kind and therefore seductive. The food comes before the furnace. Pleasures can persuade. Culture can be seductive in its conveniences and contrivances, and that's what makes it dangerous. Matthew Henry, famous Christian dead Puritan, wrote this about Daniel's resolve in Daniel 1.8. Though it should not be sinful in and of itself, it would have been an occasion of sin to him, lest by indulging his appetites with these goodies, he should grow sinful, luxuriant, and in love with the pleasures of Babylon. Which stands in stark contrast to a verse like 1 John 2.15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's as true as it is today, as when John wrote it, as when Daniel lived. The love of the Father isn't in him when you love the world. I remember a mentor telling me, and he was advanced in life, and he had some good things. And he said it somewhat reflectively. Luxury stains whatever it touches. If you have it in this life, handle it with care. Doesn't mean you can't have nice stuff. Because nice stuff isn't inherently evil. But as Calvin writes, every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. It's what our heart does with those things we like. Because our heart's an idol factory and they could turn a good thing into a bad thing. We have to handle it with care. Biblical counselor Ken Sandy wrote this, It is often not what we want that is the problem, but that we want it too much. And that's where pleasure becomes persuasive, isn't it? You want that thing too much. Like clockwork. When I am in this study and reading famous Christian dead guys like Henry and Calvin in the sovereign plan of God over my email inbox, what do I get? Handmade, full zip sweater, 650 bucks. You notice I like sweaters, maybe more than a suit coat even. I like the flexibility. I don't know what it is. It, it works, it, it just, I feel loose. I can move around a little bit more. I like a good sweater. I don't like a $650 sweater, but like clockwork, I could write a, something about like materialism, and that day I go to my inbox, and there is this beautiful, handmade, full-zip sweater, navy, cedar. I don't even know what color cedar is. I had to look it up. And it even described, it, 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 the, the design on it is mountain geometric. Nice. And then this is what they write. And I write, I share this with you because this is the reality of what we live in. This is the write-up that just pulls me right in, aside from the price tag. Our limited edition handmade sweater is hand-knit in British Columbia. Ooh. With the same time-honored techniques in use since the 1800s. Apparently the 1800s made the best sweaters. The thick 100% wool yarns are knit into a chunky sweater, which sounds gross. That's highly breathable, which is good. 
If I'm going to get a chunky sweater, I want it highly breathable. And then my favorite line. The metal two-way front zipper allows ventilating versatility. You know, I've had zippers on my coats for a long time, and I've never really praised the ventilating versatility of the zip. Z- but you see, this just calls out to me like the sirens. And then the final line, unique for 2022. See, there's the hook. I can be unique with buying the thing that everybody else wants. This heirloom sweater is available in very limited quantities. Now, nothing wrong with that sweater. I'm sure it's everything it's hyped up to be. I would keep it in a vault. And there are no mountain geometric patterns on this, so if you're tempted to judge me right now, this is not the $650 sweater. But what that does for me is it reminds me of how quickly I can be tempted by the idol of materialism. The, the pleasures that persuade. And how can culture change me? Just taking my eyes off the prize. Taking my eyes off of Christ. Just seeing that there's some temporary thing that's going to make me happy for how long? Uh, I don't know, as long as I have the sweater on. But what if it's so chunky and hot, I take it off, and it's like, oh man, that sweater. Nothing evil in and of itself. That's not the point. And that isn't the point with Daniel's resolve. It says he draws a line and says, I'm not going to let the culture get to me through the tempting ways of pleasure. Because the flip side of a guy like Daniel is a guy like Demas. Have you heard of him? In the New Testament? Demas was A fellow worker, Philemon 24 calls him. He was a fellow worker of Paul's. He was one of Paul's disciples. He's mentioned in Colossians 4. He was probably with Paul for a few years. But five years later in Paul's final letter, 2 Timothy 4.10 at the end, is one of the saddest verses about a disciple gone rogue where it says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Why did he desert him? Love this present world. There was something after a few years of being with Paul, planting churches, strengthening churches, that Demas adds it all up and says, There's something the world has better than that. It doesn't, I mean, if you do the time, this isn't a five week or five month disciple. This was somebody who was with Paul for years. But having love, I mean, he made it in a good way into two other letters. But the last thing written about him is he didn't make it. Because the persuasion of the world's pleasures got to him. And they'll get to us at our weakest points if we're not guarded. And because of that, we can become a little more cowardly and a little more compromised and a little less courageous. And that could be for some of us in here. I'm not saying it's for all of us. Because the enemy's schemes don't always come the same way. That's one side of the coin. The culture can change you through the pleasures it offers. But let's look at courageous conviction number three. It can tempt you a different way to compromise. Courageous conviction number three, Daniel lived by. Dangers will not dissuade me. Pleasures will not persuade me. He can cut himself off from the king's food. He cannot be impressed with Belshazzar's offer of reward. But he got also chicken out when what? The threat of self-preservation comes. And we've seen that in his life. Chapter 2, 13 to 16. 
That story was about Nebuchadnezzar's vision and nobody in the kingdom can tell him what it was. And he said, if you can't, you will be pulled limb from limb and your house laid in ruins, Daniel 2. So there is a threat out and now there's a bounty on every wise man's head. Verse 13, so the decree goes out that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Daniel and his companions were sought out to be killed. And the next verse says, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Dangers early in his time in Babylon didn't dissuade him from speaking up at the cost of his own life for the deliverance of someone else. Because later on in verse 18, when he goes to his companions, he asks them to pray that God would reveal the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed, along with the rest of those wise men of Babylon, those pagan wise men, those soothsayers, those mystics. He was hoping that they would be delivered too from an unjust decree. He put someone else's good in front of his own because he trusted in a God who could deliver. The opposite of self-preservation, self-sacrifice. If you want another example of that in the Old Testament, maybe from someone you didn't see much good in, 2 Samuel chapter 10. We all know 2 Samuel chapter 11 because it's where David followed his sin into adultery and murder. But 2 Samuel 10, I mean, if it just ended there, I mean, Daniel is conquering everyone. And he has a right-hand man named Joab who has a brother Abishai, and these are the best of his best. And he's always sending them out into battle, and they always come back victorious. Now we know Joab is not a picture of character. He's backbiting and backstabbing. But he did believe something about God as his judge. Verse 9 of 2 Samuel 10, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in the front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Not a great guy by any means, but he did have a conviction to be courageous and to put the results in God's hand. What drives people like that? Great acts of self-sacrifice and courage this week's Veterans Day on Friday. And they deserve that. They deserve more than that, but they at the least deserve the acknowledgement and the appreciation and the admiration for the sacrifices they've made. So if you are a veteran, thank you. Because it, 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 at the core of that is a conviction that I'm going to do something for someone else in front of myself. I found a story of a veteran worth honoring, not from the United States, but from England during World War I. His name was Jeffrey Studert Kennedy. He was an English Anglican priest who volunteered himself during World War I as a chaplain. He was also a poet. He was awarded the Military Cross after World War I, and this is what his citation read. For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, 
He showed the greatest courage and disregard for his own safety in attending to the wounded under heavy fire. He searched shell holes for our own wounded and the enemy as well. He assisted all to dressing stations and his cheerfulness and endurance had a splendid effect upon all the ranks in the frontline trenches which he constantly visited. This is a chaplain. We, we know more about his character by the uh, moniker he wrote under. He, he was a poet, and he wrote under the name Woodbine Willie, which was a nickname given him during World War I for giving Woodbine cigarettes to the soldiers he would provide aid to. And Woodbine Willie had a collection of poems, most of them about war, and this is one of them called Prayer Before an Attack. It ain't that I hope God will keep me safe while the other blokes go down. It ain't as I wants to leave this world and wear a hero's crown. It ain't for that as I says my prayers when I goes to the attack. But I pray that whatever comes my way, I may never turn my back. I leaves the matter of life and death to the father who knows what's best. And I praise that I might still play the man, whether I turns east or west. I'd sooner that it would be east, you know, to Blighty and my gal Sue. I'd sooner be there with the gold in her hair and the skies behind all blue. But I pray I may do my bit and then, if I must turn west, I'll be unashamed when my name is named and I'll find a soldier's rest. That's good. But I found something even better. It was a personal letter he wrote to his son while in the trenches in danger all around. And this is what he wrote. The first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe. The first prayer I want my son to learn is, God, make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Life and death don't matter, my son. Right and wrong do. Because daddy dead is daddy still. But daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you'd like to put in a bit about safety too in Motherwood. Well, put it in afterwards, always afterwards, for that doesn't matter nearly as much. That's courageous conviction, isn't it? Inner devotion to doing the right thing before God drives the outward duty to give your life for someone else's good. And when that devotion to God drives your duty to obey, no danger will dissuade you, will it? That's courageous conviction. Number three, dangers won't dissuade. But what carries you in those moments of weakness? And the temptation to compromise comes and, and you're on the precipice of being persuaded by pleasure or, or falling off into the compromise because of the, the dangers that could dissuade you because of what might come. What's going to steal your spine? Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? No, we learn from the life of Daniel, courageous conviction number four. Supplication will strengthen me. You got to believe that it starts inside. And the work of strengthening and courage starts with God strengthening you, you not strengthening yourself. What did Daniel do in chapter 2? Verse 17, he went to his house and asked his friends, his companions, and told them to call on God, seek mercy from the God of heaven. What did he do when he heard about the decree in chapter 6? 
when Darius signed the document and injunction in verse 9, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Courageous Conviction 4 says, I know God will strengthen me, so I go to him for my supply. Supplication will do the strengthening. When Daniel prayed, he modeled that he was going to God as a weak man, though he was a powerful prince. All these moments you find him second in command, third in command. And does he lean on that? Or does he lean on the everlasting arms? He leans on the everlasting arms. His authority, his title, his role meant nothing to him in those moments where his life hung in the balance because he knew all of it was in God's hands. And he models to us one of the greatest gifts of prayer is its strengthening work. But it's hard to ask God to strengthen you if you won't admit your weakness. Philippians 4, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but I'm anxious. How do I not be anxious when I'm anxious? Well, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, not just prayer and supplication, but there's a point in which even in your anxiety, even in your worries, even in your fears, you can stop and recognize and thank God. Thank him for what? Thank him that he's God. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it doesn't say immediately all the answers come back. It says the peace of God comes to you because you told daddy what you needed. That you were afraid, that you were anxious, and your Father in heaven hears. In the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, and here's the strengthening part. That peace that surpasses your understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Circle the word guard. That's how he strengthens you. You know you're protected by him. You know he's watching over you. You know he heard you but you may not see any results around you. You just know the result that's where? In you. That's what prayer does. If I'm praying to be strong and courageous and not cowardly and compromising, then I have to trust that the first person God wants me to face down is my own fears. And not try to pray for everything to be changed around me, but to recognize my own worst enemy is still within me. Because... The enemy within me wants me to what? Wants me to doubt God. Wants me to lose faith. Wants me to stop trusting him. And if I can get over that, if he can strengthen me through that, then what happens? You you turn and you face those problems of your day with what? Strength and resolve, even when they don't change. 2 Timothy 2.1, you live out the command to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus when you're on your knees in prayer. Now, we do learn this from Daniel. Prayer was a pattern. Prayer was a holy habit in his life. And now might be a good time for you to examine your life. How's the holy habit of prayer? Of you seeking God's supplication? Is it a habit? Has it been trained in you? Instinctive? And even have you formed, the, the, have you laid down those tracks 
to always be the means to the end of God's supply of grace to you. What do I mean by that? You can have a habit of prayer and that's a good thing. The time, the place, the situation, your communion with God, reading his word and then praying, hearing from him, him hearing from you. Have you ever formed a habit? The time, the place, not because there's anything holy about that, but it gets it into your system that this is just what you do. I have a habit in the morning. It's quiet in the house, which is a rare thing. So that's why I made it that habit. And I have a habit of getting, making coffee for that time. In a, in a spot on the couch, the spot I like. Nothing spiritual about those things. Because I could make coffee and sit in that spot on the couch and daydream. But they're a means to an end because they're a habit. My body just knows this is what I do. But what I do when I'm sitting there at that time with that coffee and that Bible is commune with God. And because that's just a habit in my life, it's just what I do. It's just, just like what said about Daniel. This is what just he had always done. There was nothing spiritual about the place and the position, any of it. It's just what he did. But it was the communion with his God that gave him the strength. So some of you just maybe need to start on the habit side and say, I just need to make communion with Christ in the word and prayer a habit. I need to pick it and stick with it. Just so it happens. So you put yourself in the means of grace there. That's why you can't be dogmatic with people you disciple about where it needs to be. No, help them form the habit. And then just give them the good material for it. Help them, where do I start reading my Bible if they're a new believer? What do I pray about? Give them some tips and tricks there. But it, it's God who's going to do the work in their life in that time. You just want to help them lay the tracks down for it. And we learn that from Daniel's life. Because we need those helps. So if you need that right now, don't wait till January 1. And live in some in-between state for two months waiting for the new year. Where's the time and place and pattern you're going to start tomorrow so that you can what? Be strengthened by the supply God wants to give you. Last courageous conviction, number five. Providence will protect me. Throughout every chapter, you see the providence of God, the hand of God. Providence being an old school word that people use to refer to God as because it's the summation of his sovereignty that he is over and above and in every detail of our lives. That no matter what our present circumstance look like, God is in control. He is provident. He is providing. He is giving. He is looking out for his children. And he did that for Daniel from day one. His providence delivered Daniel there. His providence protected Daniel there. Time and time again, his providence led to Daniel's promotions. Daniel 2, 48, 49. When the king promoted Daniel, it was because why? God was faithful to Daniel to reveal the dream. Daniel 3, 30. When the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Daniel, it was because God had protected them in the fire. When Daniel was brought out of obscurity in chapter 5 towards the end of his life, it was because the queen remembered he was there. 
All of it was God's providence over his life. So why he could be courageous against the culture and not persuaded by the pleasures and stand against the dangers and go to God for strength is because at the core of who Daniel was, was that God was over everything, working all things for God's glory and his good. And he had to believe that in a place that was threatening his very existence by the most powerful man or men that he had worked for. He lived out the truth of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Do you believe that truth? The king's heart. Is, it's like water in my hand that I can manipulate to send it where I want. And it's saying the king, the most important, the most powerful, whoever it is you picture, he's just another water droplet in God's hand and God turns him wherever he wishes. So will you believe that truth come Tuesday night when the results are in? Maybe that's when you need to believe it most. But start praying you believe it right now. That we have seen throughout the book of Daniel that it is God who removes kings and sets up kings and gives wisdom to the wise. Are only the Christian elected officials' hearts in the hand of God? No, it doesn't matter. Believer or unbeliever, they're in his hand and he will do with them what he wishes and not just the most important, right down to the school board member. That's how sovereign he is over every single person who has any amount of authority in this world. He raises them up and he brings them down. No exceptions to the rule. God reigns over all, it's all, all kings and kingdoms and authorities, and they're only around as long as he decides and decrees they should be. Famous uh, Christian evangelist, of the Great Awakening, George Whitfield, covered an unbelievable, literally an unbelievable amount of territory in his lifetime, both overseas in England and here in the colonies during the early 1700s, on horseback, preaching to thousands upon thousands, and the good news of the gospel being heard and people being converted. First Great Awakening. John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, those are the big names. How did he do it all? How did, how did he make it that much? How, how did he keep going to the end? He said this, I felt immortal and we are immortal until our work on earth is done. What does that mean? That as long as God has you here, he has a purpose for you to give you a strong sense, even a destiny that you are immortal until what? Your work on earth is done. That should encourage you, believer. That's why he has you here. Hearing this today. To tell someone tonight or tomorrow that he brings along in your path. That's his providence working. And you've got to live with that courageous conviction that providence will protect you. Providence will provide for you. But on the other hand, if you're not in Christ today, you may agree with those four things at the top. You may be an unbeliever in here, not found in Christ, but say, you know what? You know, I like some, some message with a little bit of bite. 
culture won't change me. And I'm not afraid of danger. And no pleasure can tempt me. And you know what? There's, there's some big guy in the sky I pray to. But if you're not found taking refuge in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, providence will not protect you. All things work for God's glory and good to those who love God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you only love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength when you've been given a new heart by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what changes everything. That's where you can, like Whitfield, feel immortal. That there's nothing that can harm you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. So if you're not found in him this morning, you need to trust in Christ today. Turn from your sin. Give Christ your life today. Call out to him for mercy. Cry out to him for forgiveness. And he offers it in his son and only in his son. And he can save you this morning. And he can give you that courageous conviction in the culture that you're in. Maybe you don't like what's happening in our culture as much as the next person. But here's the problem. There's nothing you can do about it if you're not in Christ. You don't have the power to change yourself. That's what being depraved means. Being in your own sin and misery and, and deceived by the enemy of God and the prince of power of the air. Without the power of the gospel, you are powerless to change yourself. But you give your life to Christ today and he changes you from the inside. So turn and trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the good you can do in it and through it for your glory and for our good. And as we now turn our heart's attention to the Lord's table this morning, what a wonderful way to celebrate that it's all paid for, that it's all been finished, that all of our guilt removed all of our sin forgiven, all of our shame carried away because we are found in Christ and Christ alone. Help our hearts feel that. Help our hearts know that. Help the, the, the bread and the cup this morning speak to our hearts in a way that strengthens us, we ask. Amen.